For over 5,000 years of documented history, people have been using the cannabis plant as medicine. From ancient Chinese medical journals to the modern-day dispensaries, cannabis and its many medical uses have found their way to every continent on Earth. Today, as the prohibition against this plant is slowly being lifted around the world and our technological capacity grows exponentially, we finally have the opportunity to discover what this plant is truly capable of. Please join me, Matthew Myro, as I speak with the remarkable innovators working at the cutting edge of these discoveries. This is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine. Hello, beautiful people. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast. If you've been listening for a while, you know that this is the place to go to get all the latest information out there about medical cannabis. And if you're new to the show, welcome. Rest assured that you will be getting incredible information week after week from experts in their fields, whether they're clinicians or researchers or cultivators or innovators or business owners, whatever they may be within the field of medical cannabis, I'm speaking to them and digging in and finding out all the little bits of knowledge and wisdom that they might be able to share with you my amazing audience. And speaking of y'all, if you haven't taken the time yet, make sure, first of all, you subscribe to the show so you can see every single time there's a new episode that'll pop up into your feed. And then please go over to Apple, go over to Stitcher, or wherever it might be that you are listening to this podcast, and please leave a rating. Tell me what you think all the stars, five stars. We love all the stars and some words too. Let me know what you think about how I'm presenting, how I interview, the kind of guests I have. If you think that you would be a great guest or you know a great guest, anything you want to tell me, I want to hear about it. And if you don't feel like going over to give a rating, you can reach out to me directly. As always, Matthew at edgeofcannabismedicine.com is how you'll find me. And I always appreciate hearing from you and look forward to being able to correspond in any way possible so that I can keep bringing you more and more shows with guests like today's guest, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein. I am so excited to be able to bring her to all of you. She's been on my radar since beginning the show. She's written numerous books on the topic, which we will dive into. And in this show, we go into her experience with pediatrics, with most people underdosing CBD, things like THC tolerance, taking a break so that you can have the effects stronger. We dive deep, and she has so much experience from thousands of patients over many, many years. And I know that you're going to get a lot out of this show. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Bonnie Goldstein. I am Matthew Myro, and this is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast. And today I'm honored to welcome Dr. Bonnie Goldstein. 
Dr. Goldstein is the medical director of Canna Centers Wellness and Education, a California-based medical practice devoted to educating patients about the use of cannabis for serious and chronic medical conditions. After years of working in the specialty of pediatric emergency medicine, she developed an interest in the science of medical cannabis after witnessing its beneficial effects in an ill friend. Over the last 13 years, she has evaluated thousands of patients for use of medical cannabis and is recognized as an expert in the clinical application of cannabis therapeutics. She has a special interest in treating children with intractable epilepsy, autism, cancer, and other conditions. Her latest book, Cannabis is Medicine, How Medical Cannabis and CBD Are Healing Everything from Anxiety to Chronic Pain, was published in September of 2020 by Little Brown. Dr. Goldstein, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. For sure. Well, I would love if we could just start with your journey to medical cannabis and maybe share a little bit about your ill friend that opened your eyes to this world. Well, you know, I had the typical uh, exposure to cannabis in high school and college. Um, I always knew from when I was a little girl that I wanted to be a doctor, so I didn't let anything deter me from that goal. I was pretty driven type A personality there. And uh, uh, after going through medical school and residency and working in the practice of pediatric emergency medicine, cannabis just wasn't even on my radar. I mean, it just, you know, it falls to the wayside. I wasn't a person who needed it. I wasn't sick. Um and then, of course, you know, California passes a law in 1996. You hear about it and you just kind of move forward and, you know, very busy uh, working in the field that I was in. And then um, I want to say it was around 2006 or so, 2007, a friend of mine uh, was diagnosed with a serious cancer, was going through treatment treatment, um, pretty, um, what I would call straight kind of person, meaning, you know, just, you know, uh, not real open to out of the box thinking, I would say in general, I mean, she chose uh, conventional therapy and, 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 and stuck with it without really looking elsewhere, but she was rocked by the chemo and, um, husband was the first to reach out to me and ask me about uh, cannabis, you know, knowing that there was a law in California and is there a possibility that this might help? And I, at the time, had taken some time off from uh, the, the emergency department. I was feeling burned out. I'd gotten a little financial freedom from selling a house and was able to take just this little leave of absence. And that's when the, uh, my friend approached me about this. And you know, looking back, you know, I didn't know any better, but uh, like now I look back and say, God, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know anything. Um, I didn't know about the endocannabinoid system. I didn't know about cannabinoid receptors. I didn't know that cannabis had anything more than THC in it. I mean, I really didn't know anything. I had never uh, bothered to do any research or discovery. And I think that happens with a lot of doctors. You get so caught up in your own specialty that you really, you know, don't really, um, and, and again, there are so many complexities now that people are like, there are doctors that are sub, sub, sub specialists, right? For very specific conditions. And you become an expert in that, but, you know, at the expense of kind of knowing other things, I would say. So um, that's where I was. And I started doing some research for her. I said, look, I have some time on my hands. I took some time off of work. And lo and behold, I hear about the endocannabinoid system and I learn about cannabinoid receptors and I learn about all these studies that actually had been done. 
and I was kind of surprised by it. And I uh, kind of followed with her along in her journey. She started using cannabis. It changed everything for her. And when I, when I, what I mean by that is instead of lying in bed feeling terrible, she was telling me, I'm at the dinner table with my family. I'm on the ground, on the floor playing with my son, who's three years old, instead of lying in the bathroom floor, you know, with it coming out both ends. I mean, it made a big difference for her. And I think also psychologically having a tool that was natural that helped was really helpful for her as well. So it just piqued my interest. And, you know, as I write in the beginning of my book, you know, I just never turn, I, uh, since that time, I just delved right in and I haven't really looked back. Um, I explored working in the field. I found a position in the field and then um, uh, started my own practice, which is Canna Centers. And like uh, you mentioned, I've seen thousands of thousands of patients. I've seen over a thousand pediatric, severely ill pediatric patients. And so um, the whole, all the hullabaloo, hullabaloo about cannabis being dangerous, I will tell you under medical supervision with uh, advising patients, um, using it just the same way that I would advise on other medications, it can be a really powerful tool. Yeah, and you've been doing this for so long. I imagine that you've been able to come across um, ways of administration have changed over the last 13 years. And what have you found that tends to be most effective for the greatest amount of people in terms of administration? Sure. Such a great question because there's so many different ways now. I mean, there you can inhale. Um, you can use sublingual, meaning under the tongue, like tinctures or oils. Uh, you can use edibles. So anything that you swallow into your gut is considered an edible. So whether it's a drink, a cookie, a piece of chocolate, um, uh, you know, there's chocolate covered blueberries if you want those. I mean, it's amazing what products are out there. There's patches, there's topical, there's suppositories, um, there's even one product out on the market that you can spritz up your nose. I don't have a huge amount of experience with it, but there are parents that say it works really well to stop seizures. Um, and so I'm sure we're even going to see other ways uh, for, that people will figure out. But in general, when talking about someone who's new to cannabis or specific populations like pediatric patients or elderly patients, um, often again, who are new to it, but also where you really want tight control over dosing, my advice is to start with tinctures. And the reason is, is because if you can get a tincture, um, and I explain this in the book, so there's something called the concentration, how many milligrams are in one milliliter when they make these little one milliliter syringes. And if you've ever seen an eyedropper, they're marked off half, 0.5 ml. ml is the same as like a CC if you're used to that, right? or one ml, but if most medicines now you can figure out how many milligrams are in an ml and you can dial down to one milligram if that's all you want to take. And I have patients even taking half a milligram. That gives you so much control over your dosing that you're unlikely to overdose and experience um, the unwanted side effects. The number one way not to start is to go buy an edible and eat the whole thing. That would be, and I, before 
uh, and I'm in California, before we had regulation of the products, which only started in 2018, I mean, we had 22 years where products were on the market and it was truly buyer beware. You just had no idea. And there were some companies that labeled what was in the product, but other companies were just a little loosey-goosey. You know, they called it the Wild West for a long time here. Now it's highly regulated, which in terms of, you know, patient protection, consumer protection, I think is a good idea. And it's good for medical patients to be able to dose. Um, people, I hear all the time of patients, you know, would come in and say, you know, I really wanted to try it for my chronic pain, but, you know, I ate half a cookie and I spent the next two days on the couch hallucinating. That is not a way to take medicine is just to eat half a cookie and have no idea what you're taking and all of that. So edibles are, are not necessarily the first thing I recommend. It's something that someone might transition into. But there are some edibles that come in very tiny doses, like there's some mints that are two and a half milligrams. You can cut them in half and you can get a low dose. But again, I do really like the tinctures. I think inhaling is um, very helpful for those people who need immediate relief, like someone having breakthrough pain. Someone with a severe migraine does not have time uh, to wait around for, for the longer onset of effects that sublingual or under the tongue application or edibles can take a time to take time to kick in. So there's, you know, uh, pros and cons to all the different ways. And, you know, it's such a great question as what's the best way. Um, you have to pick a way to start if you're new to it. So I recommend tinctures. And I think a lot of my colleagues now also recommend tinctures. It's a good way to start. And then once you kind of get a feel for your dosing and the way your body responds, because again, that's truly unique. And, you know, one of the things we always say, many of my colleagues and I say, is we treat the patient, not the diagnosis. So it's important to understand that I can get 10 people, let's say, in my practice that all have Parkinson's. They're not all the same. They may not have the same exact symptoms that bother them. One person might be there for tremor and the other patient's there for sleep. Well, there may be different ways that we approach that. It's not just what do you use for Parkinson's? It's not a one size fits all. But very important that you know what's in your medicine too. So the best way to start is to pick a method, which again, I advise tinctures. And then uh, the second thing is kind of thinking, you know, which cannabinoid, THC, CBD, so on is a good, uh, is a good approach. Yeah, it's a very good approach. And something that you brought up there, which I think is really interesting, is this idea of very personalized medicine for every individual. And I wonder, and maybe you can speak to this or have done research on it, but the the health and the capacity of one's own endocannabinoid system, does that have anything to do with how they engage with the phytocannabinoids as they're coming in? Absolutely. No question. Um, so someone who, let's say, has been chronically stressed, chronically ill, is not sleeping well, has tried multiple different modalities and just isn't finding the answer, likely has an endocannabinoid system that is somewhat depleted, somewhat deficient. And so one thing that's important just for anybody listening who's not aware is that we make compounds um, called endocannabinoids. They're like inner cannabis compounds. They're very similar chemically and structurally to these, the, what we call the phytocannabinoids found in the plant. So phytocannabinoids are those made by mother nature. Endocannabinoids are those made by our own cells. And the reason we make these endocannabinoids is 
specifically to maintain balance of our cellular messages. So anytime you're stressed, you have an illness, an infection, any kind of insult to you, not not verbal insult, but a (laughs) physical insult or an illness insult, your endocannabinoid system goes into action, releasing these little inner cannabis compounds to help you stay in balance. So the way to think about it is recovery, repair, protection. That's why you have an endocannabinoid system. It is a physiologic regulator to kind of, you know, I always, I, I like the analogy of a boat on the ocean, a wave comes and tips you, your endocannabinoid system balances the boat back. It puts, it rights the boat, so to speak. And remember chronic illness, chronic sleep deprivation, medications, chemotherapy, um, bad diet, no exercise, all of these things can lead to a depletion because your endocannabinoid system is kind of like, you know, the rat in the wheel trying to, trying to get somewhere and it can't catch up with the level of illness um, uh, or the level of imbalance that someone's experiencing. So when somebody starts cannabis medicine, to me, in, in my experience is when I look at somebody who's been in that kind of situation. And I wrote about uh, someone who gave me a testimonial for my book who was ill for 10 years before she started cannabis. And it took four months of taking the cannabis as recommended, touching base with me every one to two weeks with follow-up. We tweaked here and there, but it took four months for her to feel like where she said, I kind of feel like I'm getting back to where I was before all of this. And then eight months where she said, I feel normal now. I feel like I did before all of my medical stuff started. And to expect a plant to get into your body and you're perfect in one day or one week is like me expecting to hire a personal trainer tomorrow and then I'm buff by by next week. That's not going to happen. Anything natural has got to take time. You know, when people change their diets, you know, you may feel better right away, but you're not going to really reap the long-term benefits unless you stick with, let's say you decide to be a vegan or something like that. It takes time for your body to accommodate. Same thing with exercise. Same thing with meditation. You can't just, I meet a lot of people say, I can't meditate. I tried and I can't do it. It's the practice of it that gets you there. And that's how I tell people cannabis is just a plant. It's not magic. It sounds like magic when everybody's raving about it. And it, I even write in the book is it's uh, it's not a miracle. It's just science. <laughs> Those chemicals, you have to give them a chance to go in and get that imbalance balance. Now there are some people, look, I've had patients come into my practice who say my friend gave me her CBD oil because she saw that I didn't feel well. And I have to tell you, I've been using it, you know, for a few days and I feel so much better. Well, some people really are great responders and they get lucky in that first product that they try, they feel better. Of course, there could be a placebo effect, but at the same time, it's not magic where these compounds work. We know where they work in the body and we know in general what they do, right? So um, when you hear that, I always think, oh, you know, this person's a really good responder and got lucky. But I always tell people, don't give up um, with cannabis medicine. Is Make sure you, you, you hang in there and try it. Again, it's not magic. You have to give it a chance to work. 
Yeah, that's funny. I have had a professor in graduate school who liked to think of himself as a post-postmodernist, where he wanted to take everything that was deconstructed and then re-enchant all of it. That was his idea around it. So when you say it's not magic, it's just science, he would say, well, that science is pretty <laughs> magical. Well, and I <laughs> it's agree really with that. It's really amazing that that's even a thing. Right. The, I would say the science is pretty magical. And, you know, but it is ultimately really just um, uh, these compounds are biologically active, which means they interact with our physiology and you cannot expect to have the exact same reaction as, you know, your friend who has a similar condition, let's say, you know, I can line up. 20 people with arthritis who've tried cannabis and you're going to get 20 different stories of what worked, what didn't work, how much they take, which method. And, but the beauty of it is, is that there is so much like where we were 20 years ago, you could barely find cannabis. You could barely touch it. There was one cannabinoid available, THC, that's it. Take it or leave it. And we've made such advances in access, legal access for people that, um, now we have so much more clinical information on those uh, patients who seem to respond. And, and, you know, I try to, um, you know, fairly conservative physician, despite the fact that I work in the cannabis field, because ultimately you're responsible for someone's health and do no harm is something that I try to follow. But what's interesting is, you know, over the years, I've kind of developed like life-saving medicine. I never tell people go off your heart medicine, go off, your blood pressure medicine, that that's that can be damaging to someone. Cannabis hasn't been shown to stop heart arrhythmias. It can lower blood pressure, but I'll share with you that in my practice, the patients who were able to get off blood pressure medicine were those who incorporated not just cannabis, but they lost weight, they started exercising, they maybe are taking other supplements. It was never just cannabis on its own. And so, you know, I look at cannabis as part of a... a, a um, you know, one of the puzzle pieces to wellness, right? But also for people who have what I call quality of life conditions, chronic pain from whatever reason, chronic anxiety, depression from whatever reason, uh, bad sleep, right? Whether it's anxiety keeping you up or you actually have some primary reason that you your brain doesn't turn off at night. Um, cannabis can really help with those conditions and it's a natural way um, that you can, the beauty of it too, is if you don't take a dose, nothing bad will happen to you. You can skip it for a week, leave town and, you know, you're not supposed to take cannabis on the plane. So, you know, like if you needed to, to skip it, there isn't this withdrawal or rebound effect. Um, and again, under medical supervision, I just don't see a lot of side effects. We're always able to tweak. If somebody says, oh, I got the side effect, changing product or strain, changing dosing or timing, playing with it, tweaking it. And one of the other things is I found cannabis is, as a medicine is so flexible. It's just, you really can personalize it. Yeah. Now digging into your past a little bit, I was really, really excited to see how much you're engaging with some of the more, what they call minor phytocannabinoids and something like the CBNs and CBCs and CBGs and things like that. And, um, it plays into this idea of the entourage effect or the ensemble effect, depending on which camp you're in there. And I was just listening to what you're saying. They're realizing 
that even the process of being a physician who is working with a patient around cannabis medicine, it's not just the cannabis that's helping people. It's like you said, it's, it's the exercise, it's the diet, it's everything. So even the idea of using cannabis medicine as a treatment is part of a larger entourage or ensemble effect that needs to take place with that pan- the patient's healing and recovery. No question. And, and even in children. So, you know, I take care of some very, very ill children, really medically complex, but parents do have control over the diet that they give their children, right? They do have control somewhat over the sleep, right? Trying to get your child to get it, you know, you know, regular schedule and good, what we call sleep hygiene, um, getting your child out in the sun, right? Getting some vitamin D um, and no, even children who have conditions where they're um, non-ambulatory. So even if they're in a wheelchair or bedridden, you can still exercise their muscles and so on. And I definitely see that in this practice that when parents kind of engage in all of this, they see a benefit to their, to their child. So. Sure. Yeah. And so working with children, there's such a stigma that's still attached to cannabis. And even if it is cannabis medicine, people still think of it as pot or weed or whatever. How has it been your journey with the parents being able to allow them to see that this is a really strong treatment? Well, you know, by the time that most uh, families get to me, they've done their research and they've usually either spoken to other families that have used cannabis and have given a positive uh, view of it, uh, or they've, you know, read stories online or engaged in forums and whatnot. And usually they'll, they come in kind of already knowing that this is something that they want to do. I don't, I don't get people to come in and say, oh, convince me of this. That's just not kind of how it goes. And again, if you're a child and you're in my office, you are usually, um, have, you've been um, probably seen more than one doctor, uh, probably have a list of specialists. Um, you've been on multiple medications that maybe some are working, but many have not worked. Or there's just not a lot of choices. So like children with autism, there's two, only two drugs approved for autism, although there's a lot of drugs being used off-label. And really all they do is kind of squash the child's personality and kind of tranquilize them in a way. There's nothing really that's enhancing their quality of life. It's just kind of trying to make them more manageable. Well, you know, we can, we got lots of drugs. We could sedate your kid if you want, but that's not really going to help the child, is it? We want the child to be able to go to school and engage and to function and learn and enjoy and thrive in life. And is that something that you're noticing? Oh, cannabinoid medicine, especially with autism. Absolutely. I mean, I have, so I got an email today from a parent whose child had uh, neonatal strokes. So not very common, but now the child uh, struggles with, um, you know, both physical and, and intellectual uh, disabilities. And um, what we're seeing is like, she's just sends me this email. You know, he's doing this, he's focusing, he's um, starting to use more language. He's and. And right now we're not using any other conventional medication. We're just using cannabis. And one of the things I'll share with you though, is that like I already said, you have to understand that if you're going to try cannabis, you are committing. If you really want to do it at least six months, if not a year 
of committing, okay, we're going to do this. I'm not going to add 37 other drugs. I'm going to do this. I'm going to rule it in or rule it out. And I'm going to try CBD. I'm going to try CBG. I'm going to try CBDA, THCA. And we do it in a very, like a very methodical because look, even today I got an email from a parent who says they want to, that they took the child off all medications, which took a while. And now the child's not doing that great. And the mom wants to start the cannabis plus another drug. I said, you'll never know what's working or what's not working. If you get side effects, you you know, in general, cannabis doesn't have side effects, but it can in certain patients, it can aggravate seizures. It can make a child more hyperactive. It just depends on the strain and, you know, which cannabinoid is dominant. So there's a lot of details there that we, we have to look at. So I said, pick one or the other. I support whatever decision you make, but you got to pick one or the other and give it at least a month because you want to know, especially in a nonverbal child, you know, what's working and what's not working. So it can be tedious for some of these families and it can take a long time. And remember too, that kids are moving targets. They're developing and growing every day. That's what they're supposed to do. So something that worked all last year, now your childhood's puberty and uh uh-oh, hormones, now we may be having to increase the dose or change the regimen. And so it's not easy. I don't don't in any way want to make it sound like cannabis medicine is easy, but I, when you talk to families who find these great results where their children are starting to thrive and do really well, I would say that it's worth the effort, especially because if somebody had something that was a quick fix for your child, you probably would have found it already. And so, right? Like who's holding back medicine from your child? You know, when you go see the specialists at the major children's hospitals or the top, top people in the field, and they say, well, you know, we've got this or we've got that. It's, it's you know, if, if you have a condition that's very treatable, you usually find the treatment pretty quickly. And what I found is that oftentimes when there's an endocannabinoid issue, it's kind of vague. The treatment, you might get diagnosed with something, but the treatment's not so direct and not so easy. And that's something that, you know, Dr. Ethan Russo, who's the first to describe an endocannabinoid deficiency, um, described, which is difficult to treat conditions. Very interesting. So this, this latest book, The Cannabis is Medicine, this was not your first book. And what was it that evolved in your experience and within the industry itself and with cannabis medicine that you felt like it was really time to bring more information to the public? Right. Well, I'm sure you've heard a lot of people saying, oh, there's not enough research. Um, There is so much research. Now, a lot of it, we don't have a lot of human clinical trials, but we have a massive amount of experience now with patients. And we also have researchers and scientists all over the globe looking at the endocannabinoid system, looking at how endocannabinoids work, but also how phytocannabinoids interact with the endocannabinoid system. And remember, you know, it's really interesting. CBD works within the endocannabinoid system, but most of its action is outside of the endocannabinoid system, interacting with multiple other receptors and enzymes and transporters in the body. And when I wrote my first book, which was self-published back in, uh, I want to say 2016, just from when I stopped writing, because at some point to publish a book, you have to start writing. <laughs> you, you can't just keep adding or you'll never get it out the door. Um, I, I would say it was probably around August or September of 2016. 
that kind of was the cutoff. Any research after that wasn't included in the book. And there has been, you know, I joke around, it's like dog years. One year in the cannabis industry of, of research is like seven years of knowledge packed in because people are really curious and scientists really want to know. And now, as you know, it's big business. So now there are people funding studies and uh, there's pharmaceutical companies involved as well that are doing a lot of research. And I just felt the book needed to be updated. So I took my old book and I rewrote about 80% of it. So the chapter on the endocannabinoid system is very similar because that's science. And that's like, you know, if you pick up five textbooks about plant physiology, they're all going to kind of contain the same scientific data because that it's nonfiction and it, you have to, uh, you know, include the science, the science about the plant. And of course I tried to update where we have new information, but really the part, the parts of the book that are updated, there's a one chapter, which is devoted to each cannabinoid. So let's just say CBD. Okay. The targets where we know CBD interacts. So which receptors, which transporters, which enzymes, and then taking that, okay, so if it works here, then how does that translate to a physiologic effect in a human? So I've broken down that chapter on each cannabinoid. So CBD, THC, THCA, CBDA, CBG, CBN, and so on to break down. This is what we know so far. And, you know, it's interesting, the amount of scientific papers coming down the pike right now about cannabinoids uh, and their interaction with um, human physiology or animal physiology, it is just like the speed of light. It's just coming out every day, paper after paper after paper. And I felt like in my own brain, I'm pretty organized. I'm a Virgo and I'm kind of rigid in my perfectionism. I felt like I, I didn't have all the data in one spot. So I really felt it quite necessary to take what we know up to now and put it in this very organized chapter of really what does CBD do? What does THC do? And, and so on for the other phytocannabinoids. And again, there's a lot of stuff that, that they do that hasn't been studied because look, I have not done a study on what does CBDA do in children with autism. We just don't have it. Um, but we know a few things about CBDA, right? Anti-inflammatory, anti-nausea, and so on. Um, and then I have all this clinical knowledge, so I try to put that in there. This is what I've seen. Um, it would be really nice to be able to research every part of this. And as you know, THC and CBD are kind of the main focus of research. And all these like minor cannabinoids that you were talking about, to me, maybe the answer is in those. Maybe, you know, I'm, I have a patient who has cancer is on a chemotherapy regimen that's pretty difficult and CBD and THC, which she's been taking kind of all along um, as they've escalated some of her chemo, she was having worsening nausea. And there's some evidence that CBDA is uh, quite good for nausea and at a very low dose, about one hundredth of the dose of CBD. So I said, are you willing to try this? I said, you know, we don't have a lot of clinical, we don't have human clinical trials, but do you want to try it? And we tried it. And sure enough, she said it is effective at, she just puts a few drops under her tongue. And she said, I just put my head back. I hold it in my mouth. I let it dissolve. I, then I swallow it. And she says, and usually within 15 to 30 minutes, 
She is, the nausea is gone. She says, I just feel so much better. Now, there are people that might argue it's a placebo effect. And I might argue that. But she feels better. So I kind of don't care. Yeah. If you would let me, if you take it off this Controlled Substance Act and let me study it, right? Then I could tell you for sure. <laughs> so let's get it off. Let's deschedule it so we can get these studies done. Because again, I often say also, you know, these patients are spending money on this. It's out of pocket. And I don't want to have anybody wasting their precious resources on something that's not going to work for them. Um, so I think doing human clinical trials would be really helpful for those of us in this field so that we can kind of narrow down who would benefit from this. What doses seem to work best, right? Rather than, you know, okay, we're going to try based on, and, and again, I, you build clinical knowledge, but it would still be nice to have, I, I like having the research to be able to tell the patients, you know, in studies, it shows that CBD stops these kinds of seizures, but not these other kinds of seizures. That's important. I don't want to waste anybody's time, effort, and money. I'm sure your patients really appreciate that too. <laughs> so morphologically speaking, the plant morphology, these more minor sort of cannabinoids, they have far less of them in the plant than they do of the THC and the CBD. I'm wondering, you were mentioning that the CBDA, you need significantly less of it in order to have a minimum effective dose. Do you think that a way forward trying to understand these things that once we do have this lift of the criminality on a federal level around this research, do you feel like looking at the ratios that exist naturally in the plant is a really great place to start as far as trying to understand the dosage? Well, I think that it would be nice to be able to develop chemovars that have, when chemovars is kind of the fancy name for chemical variety of, of the plant, that let's say for epilepsy or for seizures, right? So we have a decent amount of CBD. We have some THC because THC is anticonvulsant. Um, we have some uh, linalool, which is an anti, a strong anticonvulsant in its own right. Uh, we have some myrcene, which is calming for a neuroexcitatory brain. So it would be nice to have chemovars that are developed that do have kind of the package, so to speak, of what might be helpful for someone, like, again, with epilepsy, someone with chronic pain. I still feel, though, that for each individual, and what I found over the last number of years is that layering also is really very helpful. It's kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, like a cannabis salad, right? It's not just one strain. I, I tell a lot of people blend because what might be missing in one, you can find in another. Many of my pediatric patients take multiple products and um, see a better effect. And that's because of that entourage. I, there are people who say the entourage effect doesn't exist. I, I disagree. The entourage does exist. Um, there is clear evidence that in some of my patients, like right now, there's a little girl I take care of. She's been my patient going on six or seven years now. And when she came to me, she was having hundreds and hundreds of seizures an hour documented on an EEG. She couldn't do anything. At the age of 10, she sat in a stroller and did nothing. She barely could track with her eyes. She was being fed by a tube. She did not know what mom and dad, maybe she kind of knew, but 
there was no evidence that she knew. This is a girl now who's sitting up in a wheelchair, using an iPad to communicate, learn to feed herself, said mama for the first time at the age of 12, is just a completely different human being. And she is on, I am not lying, eight different products. Now, how did we end up with eight? Well, we started with one and we went through this rule it in or rule it out. And her, I give her mother a ton of credit because her mother has done most of the work here. I've only been kind of, you know, advising from the sidelines. But she, after, you know, the first, let's say, four months seeing what a difference in this child's life, she was off and running. She was like, okay, as long as I have Dr. Goldstein to tell me what's too much and what I shouldn't do, I'm going to try different things. And, you know, it's interesting. So CBD gave her a tremendous amount of um, like uh, alertness, consciousness. She became aware. She started looking around. She started tr following dad, walking around the room. Now the seizures were still there. We added THCA, which is an anti-convulsant, at least anecdotally and clinically. We added that and that's when her, her seizures just completely dropped. So she's close to over 90% seizure free at this point. And that really changed everything because if you can stop seizures in a child's brain, then their brain can move forward, right? And they can move forward and develop. And so over time, the mom would say, well, can I try CBG? Yeah, let's try it. Let's see what it does. Start low, we rule it in or rule it out. And I talk a lot about that, rule it in or rule it out. You can't just take a little bit and say, oh, didn't work, forget it. Ruling it in or ruling it out means you start low. We usually say start low, go slow. You start with a low dose. You titrate up. Don't With THC, you can really make yourself uncomfortable, but of course you won't die. Nothing it will wear off. Nothing bad will happen. And usually, again, if you start low and go slow, you kind of find what I call the ceiling dose, which is the too much dose for THC. If you know that that's seven milligrams, you stay under that. If you know 10 milligrams makes you really loopy and you're hallucinating, okay, well, don't go that high, but you start low and figure that out. Same thing with the pediatric patients. We start low, we titrate up, the parents observe. It can take time. It's a bit tedious. And sometimes you don't know the best dose until you pass it up and go, oh yeah, nope, that's too much. Let me back up. And that's why I really encourage all patients, uh, parents of children, and trying this or, and adults as well, you know, journal, log, how you feel, right? Write down the name of the product you're trying, write down what the concentration is, try to calculate the dosing, and then make sure you log because it will help you find what works best. So if let's say five milligrams of CBG gives you anti-anxiety, antidepressant effects, but you go a little bit higher and you're, let's say, too sleepy, then that's not your dose. You back up. And that's the beauty of cannabis, again, going back to that personalized and customized. And remember, too, that we don't absorb everything we take. So some people may have better absorption than others. Um, and someone may, like I have parents say, well, what's a high dose? It, the high, high dose is, if you want to say too much, I don't say it's a high dose or a low dose. It's either too much or it's just right or it's not enough. <laughs> for that particular individual, because I don't like to compare. Look, I have pediatric patients who take 50 milligrams of THC a day who thrive. They, I, look, 
either with autism or epilepsy, they're taking combination CBD, THC, and so on. Um, but for instance, right now I'm taking care of a little boy who takes 400 milligrams a day of CBD for his seizures. And it's a whole plant, right? So it's 400 milligrams of CBD along with some THC in there. But he also takes a separate product of THC um, for his autism. And he's about on 50 milligrams a day. I, I will tell you right now, if I took 50 milligrams of THC, <laughs> I would be under the table for days. <laughs> I, I might be hallucinating. But for him, he takes that. Now, does he, does that, is he getting 50 milligrams? I don't know. We know children with autism have like four times more likely to have gut issues. They're not great absorbers. They, and we also know that there are two studies now that show that they have low levels of their natural endocannabinoids. Now that test is not commercially available, but in two academic studies, they were able to measure those levels. And it corresponded that when they looked at the kids with um, autism and the kids that what we call neurotypically developing, not kids with, without autism, the kids with autism, their bodies didn't appear to not make enough of their own uh, endocannabinoids. So when you're taking these compounds, if you have a deficiency, it's kind of filling in the gap and may not, and that may be why he doesn't feel intoxicated or impaired on 50 milligrams. But if your body's making enough and there isn't a deficiency, maybe it's that, you know, so to speak, the tank is full, right? And you, and taking more only pushes you over. So we have to remember that all of our bodies are different. And I, I kind of liken it to diabetes, you know, people who take insulin, not all diabetics take the same amount of insulin. They have, you know, what they call a sliding scale based on their sugar measurement and, you know, what they ate that day and their activity and they learn in the first month of using insulin, kind of, oh, this is how my body reacts. So when I have a sugar that's here, I measure out this much insulin, I take that, and then I see the response, and they learn about their own bodies. And that's kind of how you have to look at cannabis as well. You learn how your body responds. I have a lot of patients that, adult patients, that they don't like the edible products because they just don't like the way that they feel on them. And we know that when you eat an edible product, the THC gets converted in your liver to a secondary metabolite called 11-hydroxy-THC, which then is released into your bloodstream. And it can be you know, somewhere between three and five times more psychoactive or intoxicating than THC. So maybe your body makes more of that and it makes, makes you feel weird, right? And that's why, and then there's other people who love edibles. That's my favorite way. That's the way I'm going to take it. So we have to respect these differences between people in terms of, um, you know, um, and I think that conventional medicine sometimes teaches us not to pay attention to our body. Here, just take this pill. This is what you need. It's twice a day. See you in three months. Right. And I think that you can't, that's not how cannabis medicine works. And that was actually the point I was just going to make, the importance of finding a physician like yourself in wherever, whichever legal state that they live in, somebody that's going to be with them on this journey. That's not just going to be, you know, I lived in California for 15 years. I, I witnessed the churn and burn clinics. I know what that's all about. And, and it's, it's not a way to get well. 
with these products. So you really have to have someone that cares and that is willing to be with you every step of the way to check in, like you're saying, once a week or bi-monthly or whatever it might be. Right, right. I do find that the check-in is so important because the feedback determines the next steps of the path. There, Like I said, it's not cookie cutter. So, you know, you have to be willing when you get to a fork in the road, okay, am I continuing with this product or am I going to switch to another product? Am I going to switch to a different product that has CBD or am I going to switch to a different product or different cannabinoid or am I going to switch to a different method? It helps to have somebody who has experience to say, well, there's no wrong answer here. And for, for most patients, there's not a lot of wrong ways to go, to be perfectly honest. Except I have found that if you don't know what you're doing, well, you know, when I, I was a brand new intern, I have to tell you this story. Um, I was a brand new doctor. I mean, green, like first month of being in a hospital as an MD, taking care of patients. And I got assigned the sickest baby in the neonatal ICU. And I was terrified. I had no idea. I mean, the baby was like as big as your hand. Okay. And we're on morning rounds. And the attending physician says to me, oh, Dr. Goldstein, this is your patient. So, um, you know, tell me what you want to do. And I looked at him and I said, I have no idea. <laughs> I've been a doctor for two weeks. I have yeah. no idea. This is like the most complicated human. <laughs> it fits in my hand, but I have no idea. I said, I really don't know. I've not, I've not uh, seen this before in my, you know, limited experience so far. I love him for saying this. He said, hmm, well, if you don't know where you're going, any path will take you there. And I'm sure people have heard that saying before. Um, with cannabis, if you don't know what you're doing, you can end up spinning in circles. And there are people that will come to me who have been trying cannabis for three months and they just can't figure it out. And they do need that kind of the person who has that clinical experience to say, okay, you didn't fully explore CBD. 99% of patients that try CBD on their own and then come to my practice who say CBD doesn't help me are underdosing. Almost 100% of them. And there are people who find their dose and that's great. But again, those patients that come to me and say, I tried CBD and it didn't work. And the reality is, is that most people don't realize that for CBD, larger doses are often indicated for certain conditions. When you read the scientific literature for epilepsy, it can be in the hundreds of milligrams. Parkinson's, hundreds of milligrams. If you buy a bottle of CBD at a dispensary that has 200 milligrams in the whole bottle and your dose is 250 milligrams a day, you would never think that, right? You would never take the whole bottle in another half because that would be probably cost prohibitive. So you have to kind of understand that you know, this whole idea of self-medicating with cannabis, for many people, they figure it out. And I say hallelujah to that. I think that's great. But if you haven't found um, your treatment or you feel like you've used cannabis and it's been detrimental to you, I equate that to me diagnosing somebody with like, you know, you have rheumatoid arthritis. Here's the keys to CVS pharmacy. Go ahead and pick a medicine, Right. If you don't know, if you're not trained in it, if you don't know, if you don't have the clinical experience, you just hear the, your friend who says, oh, yeah, I use this and it works great. That's not enough. 
that's only scratching the surface. And um, sometimes if you don't know what you don't know, you can't find the answer. So that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is I can't take care of everybody under the sun, nor can some of my colleagues, you know, we do the best we can. Um, but it, I tried to give people kind of a roadmap to success in there. And we were speaking beforehand that you wanted to sort of walk the Majamaka, the middle path where you're not going too sciencey, but also not too much into. Right, I don't want to dumb it down for anybody. Side. Yeah, yeah, you, it's hard to dumb it down because it's it's much more. Look, we have all been propagandized to think about uh, cannabis. Like, what when you think about cannabis, like what's the picture that comes to your mind? And for many people, it's you know the person sitting there smoking a joint, and that's it. And that's not how we should look at this as cannabis as medicine. I mean, if that works for you, great. But that's for the many people who use cannabis as medicine, that's not going to work. So um, we have to kind of change that perception that here's this um, plant out there that is um, uh, like one dimensional because it's not, it's, it's much more than that. And I'm not trying to complicate it because like I said, a lot of people do self-medicate and do really well. But like, I've seen patients that come in and say, I'm just not getting the benefits anymore. And what's happened is they've have a huge amount of THC tolerance. And what, what is THC tolerance? So remember you have these receptors that sit on a cell wall. They're like a door. So think about the door to your house, right? If you lock your door, the only way I'm going to get into your house is if I have the key, let's say you don't answer the door when I knock, I need a key to get in. So THC is the key to that receptor. Okay, and it sticks onto that receptor and it triggers a chemical reaction inside the house or basically inside the cell. Okay, if you inundate that receptor with THC and you're not using any other like CBD or other cannabinoids, it's just you're using THC all the time and and, and in it, I would say in a more chronic heavy use, what happens is. You basically just had somebody come and put a brick wall over your over the door. It's gone. So what happens actually is the receptor pulls away from the cell wall and hides inside the cell. Okay. Now the THC can't get to it. It hasn't, it just lost its its key. It, it lost the lock. It, it has no lock to, to bind to. The beauty of it though is if you abstain. We've all heard this. You'd say, and what happens? Oh, now I, you know, I took two weeks off and oh man, I took a puff. I got so high. Okay, why? Well, because what happens is those receptors, once they don't have the THC there all the time, let's say you abstain. And by the way, we call that down regulation of the receptors. Okay. What happens is that those receptors kind of in a way, I mean, I'm simplifying it, but they get like the all clear signal and they start to pop back out. It's like almost like a self-preservation mechanism. They're just saying it's too much, okay? So what happens is they come back out. Now, it's interesting that in chronic illness, there's some evidence to show that these receptors are upregulated. Your body actually makes more receptors because it's desperate for balance. It's saying, send me more. Now, by the way, those receptors are, are... we know that we don't have those receptors for THC. It just so happens THC binds to them and works really well at them. We have those receptors for our own natural endocannabinoids, right? And by the way, when you develop tolerance and those receptors hide within the cell, 
you've now shut down your own endocannabinoid system or you've downregulated it. So a lot of patients that have come to me, and I see this a lot in teenagers who are just kind of um, dabbing or heavily vaping, usually self-medicating for anxiety, depression, or post-traumatic stress or some, some other condition. I mean, they mean well, but again, they don't know what they're doing because they don't know the physiology. They'll shut down their receptor system, basically. And again, it's temporary. Those upregulate very easily when you abstain, which is a good thing. But if they shut it down, now their natural endocannabinoids that are being released in response to this anxiety and depression triggers, those don't have now the target where they work. And then their anxiety gets worse. And I'm sure some people listening might say, oh, now a couple of weeks ago, I got a call from someone I trained with a hundred years ago. And she was telling me about that she really wants to learn about cannabis and so on. So we had a really nice conversation, kind of a blast from the past, so to speak, an MD that was working in another field who's now kind of reinventing herself as an integrative doctor, which is great. But her son did this exact thing. He actually ended up hospitalized because of his anxiety was so out of control that he became suicidal. And he was dabbing nonstop in like his last year of high school. And when I explained the physiology, she said, oh, my gosh, that makes so much sense. So although THC is a beautiful tool, you don't want to overdo it. You don't want to shut down your receptors because you need those receptors. And I, I've said this before. I'm sure people who've heard me speak who listen to this will probably say, oh, she said that before. I joke around. I want to make a T-shirt that says respect your receptors. You know, it's uh, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Let them be. THC is fine. You can use it. But remember, take a break every now and then if you use it every day. I told people one day a week or three to five days every three months. If you're on low dose, one milligram, five milligrams, you're probably not going to develop that much tolerance. But if you take more than that, it's good to take a break every now and then. Interestingly, if you combine CBD, CBD kind of affects the way THC binds to the receptor and you don't get as much tolerance. So there's a pharmaceutical that I'm sure you've heard of called Sativex that's not available in the United States, um, not yet anyway. And it's um, um, available in like, I don't know, 25 countries outside the United States for multiple sclerosis. It's a one-to-one -one ratio, half CBD, half THC. It's a little spray that you can spritz. It's mainly for spasticity of multiple uh, sclerosis or for advanced cancer pain. And the beauty of this pharmaceutical is that they were able to do lots of clinical trials, and now they have many years' experience looking at it, and nobody seems to develop tolerance. And that's interesting. Why? Well, I think it's one is people don't really escalate the dose because CBD and THC work so well together for these conditions, but also the presence of CBD seems to hinder the, the rate of tolerance. So I often tell people combine, you know, because it can be very helpful. And the anxiolytic effects of CBD help a lot with some of the more paranoia things that can happen with too much THC. That's exactly right. It can help buffer some of the unwanted effects. Yeah. Depending on how much of each you have. Sure. So I know we're coming up on our time, but I would be remiss if I didn't have this chance to ask you about Delta-8 THC. 
And I know that this is something that I've seen. I live in Austin, Texas now. And a buddy of mine was like, oh, I was at the CBD store and they were selling Delta 8 THC gummies. He's like, I thought THC was illegal in Texas, but right. not Delta 8. Well, it is. If you could. No. Yeah. It is illegal. Don't okay. be. And I just did a, a webinar yesterday with a number of other doctors and this exact question came up. Do not be fooled that it is not illegal. If the DEA wanted to, they could bust whoever's making that, selling it, has it in, in their possession. So do not be under uh, the idea that CBD, THC, Delta-8, or CBG, or whatever it is, all cannabinoids, all of these compounds are still considered Schedule One substances, even though now they're saying CBD from hemp is considered legal. So, you know, if you know the source of your CBD and they can trace it back to a plant that has more than 0.3% THC, that's illegal CBD. I mean, it's ridiculous and it's arbitrary. This 0.3% is a ridiculous number. It's completely arbitrary, something they came up with a long time ago, I think in order to bust people. But Delta-8 THC is not, it is a Schedule One substance. However, it is a uh, like cousin of Delta nine THC, which is when we talk about THC, we're mostly talking about Delta nine. Um, it's not been studied as it nearly as much. It's definitely understudied, but there's some evidence, um, that it works well for nausea. And there's a, a very, uh, nice report out of Israel where they gave Delta eight THC to children receiving chemotherapy that was known to be uh, known to provoke nausea and vomiting. Um, and they've got thousands of uh, patient doses that they've added up. And almost all the patients had a terrific response with zero impairment or intoxication. So, and at low doses. So there's no question that Delta-8 THC might be helpful for someone who's looking for treatment of nausea and vomiting, either due to chemotherapy or maybe a migraine. And people get highly nauseous with migraines. So that might be helpful. And then there's some evidence that it may be helpful for anxiety without, again, the impairment or the uh, intoxication. It's very, very important to always, when you're looking at products, to look and see what else is in the bottle. So just recently, or well, within the last year in California, a cannabinoid called THCV, tetrahydrocannabivorin, became available. And I had patients asking me about it even before I knew it was on the market. I so said, I got to look at the product and I got to look at what's in it. So remember, we have a thing called the certificate of analysis, which is basically the product went to a lab, the lab tested it. What's, what are the cannabinoids? Are there pesticides? Are there solvents? All these different tests. So I, I looked up what's available here and the product that had THCV also had a fair amount of THC in it and a fair amount of CBD. So it's very hard for me to know when a patient, let's say, would maybe take THCV for anxiety, right? Is it the THC helping with the anxiety? Is it the CBD? Is it the THCV when you use a combination product? So in my kind of advice to patients, I usually recommend to use a monodominant compound, which means one dominant so that you know what that compound does for you. Great to combine them, but I never start off combining. I always like to see what does CBD do? What does THC do? What does Delta-8 do, right? So, yeah, it's out there. I've heard, again, I just heard this yesterday 
Uh, it's been on the California market for a little while, and I have had some success treating some teenagers with anxiety with it um, rather than using THC because it's less impairing, allows them to function a little bit better. Um, and definitely, uh, you know, the, the studies on the nausea and vomiting are quite compelling. I have not used it for that. I have not recommended it for patients for that yet. Yeah, it seemed to, just in his own personal anecdotal experience, he said it didn't quite have the same head euphoria, but more mm-hmm. of the, the, the body melty kind of feeling. So that'd be interesting, interesting that maybe it helped with a little bit of anxiety, maybe, like you just felt more relaxed. And the question is, is, is there THC in that product? Right. Is there CBD in that product? So I'd be curious to see, you know, and again, I'm not a big fan of isolates. Remember what, you know, that means it is really just that compound with nothing else. I like whole plant with a monodominant to start off with. And then once you figure out how your body responds to these various cannabinoids, then you can delve into the more combination products. So like in California, we have CBD, THC products, tons of them at every ratio you can imagine. And then we also have products that are really nice blends of THC, CBD, CBDA, and THCA. So you get your raw plus your heated, basically either they're mixed, they're blended before, or they're not heated up as much. They're only heated kind of halfway. And I do find that those can be very helpful for patients. But if you start off with that, and you don't have the exact effect that you're looking for, it's hard to unwind and figure out, well, which one was helping or which compound in the product isn't helping. So it, it's good to start off with monodominant so you can see how your body responds. I think that's fantastic advice. That's great. Thank you. All right. So last question coming up on the end of our time here. If you could see just one thing change within the medical cannabis industry, what would that one thing be? Deschedule cannabis from the Controlled Substance Act, period, end of story. Let me research. Let me learn the way scientists learn. Let all of these people out there who are brilliant minds who are interested in this, give them the freedom. That would be true freedom for cannabis, to be able to study it so that we can really understand it. I just don't understand what everybody's afraid of. And when people say, why is it still there? You know, when things don't make sense, you boil it down to one thing, money, right? If it's going to substitute for a lot of pharmaceuticals, there are a lot of people that stand to lose money. Yeah. So unfortunately, I hate to say that, but. It's probably true. It's probably true. At least partially. At least partially. Yeah. In the meantime, the black market is thriving around this country because of their decisions. Absolutely. You know, and. And if I could ask for for a second thing, I would say stop taxing medical patients. You know, Mm -hmm. fine, you want to tax the adult use or recreational use, go right ahead. But why are you taxing medical patients for whom this, why why should a parent of a very sick child have to pay close to 30% tax on the medicine? Believe me, they, and, and I've said this so many times, I'm blue in the face from saying it. They would love to go to the pharmacy and pick up the prescription covered by insurance. They would love for that medicine to work. They tried it. It didn't work. Why are we punishing them? Because cannabis works for their child. And again, for the same thing for adults that are struggling who find cannabis to work, not just the kids. It, yeah. it, it's really heartbreaking for me and, and that our politicians look at this as a source of revenue. 
Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Goldstein, your wisdom, your experience. I really appreciate it. And being able to have so much of this quote unquote anecdotal evidence, but because you've been a clinician for so long, I don't even think it's anecdotal anymore. This is real clinical research. And I'm so grateful that you've been able to put this into your book and for people to be able to witness that this is real evidence. And it's so important that you keep, keep putting that out there to the world. So thank you for that. And thank you for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me. Great to speak with you. Thank you, everyone, for your time today. Thank you, Dr. Goldstein, for spending an hour with me and sharing your wisdom. To all my wonderful listeners, take a moment, rate the show five stars, leave a little review, tell me what you're loving about everything, tell me what we can improve on. Take the time, go do it. Every time that you do, it helps more people learn about the show. And if you're listening, you know exactly how important cannabis medicine is. And the more people that can have a proper education, removing stigmas, the better the entire industry is and the better off all the patients and all of you listeners will be because we can share this knowledge together and finally bring this medicine to the world because we deserve it. We humans deserve this medicine. So until next time, my friends, please stay healthy and enjoy yourself. This Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast is copyright EM2P2 Inc. 2020. All rights reserved. Podcast use and availability is governed by terms and disclaimers available at edgeofcannabismedicine.com forward slash terms. I'm your host, Matthew Myro, and thank you for listening.